I want to express again my thanks uh, to Brother Ray for uh, joining me on the trip up here and keeping me company and allowing me to get to know him better. Uh, thankful for the message this morning and thank you to the church for the opportunity to be here and meet with you. And uh, I will fondly remember this this visit and our time together. Uh, thankful for those who are here this morning who weren't with us yesterday and Friday and I gotta say, I'm suffering from a little bit of beard envy this morning, but, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I love a great beard, but mine won't get any longer than this. Um, you know, it's recorded that one time a young preacher asked a well respected and, uh, esteemed minister for advice on how to address the scriptures and how to preach the gospel and, the old minister told him, well, I'll tell you what I do. I pray and seek a text. I read that text, and then I go straight cross-country to Calvary, to Jesus Christ. Well, any preaching that's worthy of the name must be centered around Jesus Christ and the price that he paid, the sacrifice that he was, all of the message of salvation is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ, and that's what's recorded for us there in Isaiah 53. But I would modify that that advice. I don't think we go cross-country to Calvary. I think, at least in some level, Jesus Christ is present in every text of the Scripture. And if our perspective is right, if our minds are correct, We'll see Jesus Christ in every aspect of his creation and especially in every aspect of his life that we live. The Lord inspired Isaiah the prophet to observe that man can do nothing for himself. No amount of repentance, no amount of professed worship, no amount of service really amounts to anything. In fact, he worded it this way, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They're, they're, they're less than garbage. They're fit for nothing. And then he says in Isaiah 59, as well as a couple of other chapters, that he looked, the Lord looked, and there was none to help. He looked and there was none to help. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation to him. And Brother Ray read to us that the arm of the Lord is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, who came not as a king and not as a victor and not as one who exalted himself, but appeared as one who was uh, mediocre or less than mediocre in appearance. Nothing comely about him that men should desire him. So we come to the New Testament Scripture where the Savior inspires the writing of His Word, the revelation of His New Covenant, and enlightens us on the meaning of so many Old Testament texts. And the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi, a church that was very dear to his heart, though the church that of all churches he spent the least time in the establishment of. 
If you remember in the book of Acts, we read in Acts 16 how um, how Paul traveled to Macedonia uh, after receiving direction from the Holy Spirit that there was a need there. And he arrived in the city of Philippi and there found some women down by the river praying. And, and he began to speak to them and he spoke to them the gospel and Lydia and the others with her there believed. And the city was really turned upside down in, in just short order. Uh, Lydia and the other women, they believed, they professed faith, they were baptized, those about them began to hear. And Paul and Silas, they began to minister in the city, and as they did, there was a great upheaval because there was a, an, a lucrative business there found in people who were... Who were uh, exercising uh, relationships with evil spirits. There was a young woman there who was enslaved who was telling fortunes, and she was possessed of an evil spirit. And she came behind them knowing from the evil spirit, knowing from Satan himself that these men were men of God. And she began to cry out that these are the men of God. These are servants of the Most High God. So that it was causing a problem. It was causing a distraction. So... Being confronted by this difficulty, Paul and Silas turned and spoke to the woman, and they freed her from this possession of this evil spirit. Well, that caused her masters a great deal of trouble. They were making a living, and their entire living was turned upside down. It was canceled. So finally, the uproar grew so great that Paul was arrested along with Silas, and they were put in prison, and they were spending the night in the jail there. And at night, as they were bound hand and foot in stocks, they began to sing praises to God and rejoice even in this affliction. And at that moment, the prison was shaken. The prison was shaken, their bonds fell free, the doors to the prison were opened, and all the prisoners had access to escape. And the jailer, aware of the tumult, aware of the turmoil, he came into the prison, and the first thing he noticed was the gates were standing open. And he knew that all the prisoners must have escaped. He knew that his life and that of his family were probably forfeit. So we read that he was determined to take his life. And then Paul spoke to him, don't be, don't be afraid, don't be concerned, don't, do no harm to yourself, we're all here. Paul and Silas had constrained all the prisoners to stay and remain in the prison. And they preached the gospel, and that man and his household believed, and they were baptized. And then, being brought before the magistrates, having declared themselves Roman citizens, Paul and Silas were released and requested to leave the city. And that was the end of their experience there at Philippi. But Paul loved this church, he loved the people there, and these people were subjected more than most of the other churches to direct persecution from the Roman authorities. They were founded in persecution, and the persecution continued. So fast forward years later, and Paul is in prison himself, and Paul is subjected to all of the afflictions that he describes there in the Corinthian letter, plus more, And he writes back to the church at Philippi along with Timotheus and sends a letter by way of one of their own, Epaphras. I don't want to attempt in the short time this morning to cover the entire book of Philippians, but I want to gain some insight into how this letter is addressed and the application that we should find in our lives Brother Leroy told me I had as much time as I wanted, and, uh, you know, this morning... I promise we won't go too long, but uh, I'm not going to stop at 12 noon. I'll just give you warning. The Apostle Paul writes to this Philippian church, and he 
as we talked about on Friday night, becomes all things to all men, that by all means he might save some. Now, these are believers, but these are people Paul first is going to draw a commonality with, a common experience. Paul never set himself on a pedestal and said, I'm going to talk down to you people. I'm holy, I'm righteous, and I'm going to talk to you about how you need to serve God and what you need to do to be like me. Now, Paul was able to say from time to time things like, follow me as I follow Christ. But Paul never spoke as the authority who wasn't in touch with the experience and the situation of the people. As a matter of fact, no minister of the gospel ever ministers effectively in that manner. I can't talk to you unless you can relate to me, who I am and where I am. And that's true of Jesus Christ himself. We read in the Hebrew letter, part of the appeal at the beginning of the Hebrew letter is, we don't have a high priest who can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Jesus Christ himself was tempted in all points like as we are, the difference being he was without sin. So Paul writes to the Philippians and he addresses the elephant in the room. He says, I am imprisoned. Some of you have been in prison. He says, I'm in prison. Some of you have suffered. He says, I have suffered. And as a matter of fact, he says, I've suffered so much that right now I recognize my life is probably in danger. And to be quite honest with you, I'm not sure whether I would rather just die and be with the Lord because my expectation and my hope is that real. Paul says, I've suffered and I'm tired of the suffering. And he says, to depart and be with God, oh, it would be far, far better. I would desire to depart and be with God, but it's more needful to you that I remain. How does Paul know that? How does Paul know it's needful that he remain? How does he know it's important for them that he remain? Well, he's writing by inspiration of God a letter to them to encourage them. God has him here for a reason. I remember earlier this year, Sister Claudia Dalton, a dear sweet sister from San Antonio, passed away. But the last few months, the last year or so of her life, I had the privilege of of preaching to her every time I was in Temple because she had moved to her daughter's house there in Temple. Sister Claudia was 93 years old. She couldn't do very much of anything. Her husband, Brother Merle, had passed away about 20 years before. She felt like there was really no value in her continued existence. And this really set on the last several months of her life. And a couple of Sundays, I saw her and talked to her and told her what a blessing it was to see her. And she told me, Brother Jody, I just, I just really don't know why the Lord has me here. I just wish I could die. I wish I could go home. I don't want to live any longer. And I told her, Sister Claudia, do you still pray? She said, oh, yes, every day. I said, I know you do. I said, who do you pray for? She said, well, I pray for you. I pray for all the ministers that I know. I pray for everyone in the church. I pray for my children and my grandchildren. I said, Sister Claudia, the Lord has you here for a purpose. Those prayers matter. Pray while you're here. And she said, well, I just don't know that that, I don't know that that's enough. I feel like I'm of no value. Sister Claudia, you're here for a purpose. The Lord has you here. Well, that was the Apostle Paul as he wrote to these Philippians. He says, look, I know my ministry has been constricted. And just to put it in perspective, the Apostle Paul, for years after his conversion, and after God gave him such a clear commission, the Lord said, I've called you, I've chosen you, I've saved you, that you can be my minister to the Gentiles. 
to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. I've given you a great work. And we can see by the fact that the church is here today that the Apostle Paul was effective in that work. But Paul preached the gospel. He preached the gospel every day, every night. We can't really fathom how much the Apostle Paul preached. And he preached that message every day and in every way ministered the Word of God, the Word of Jesus Christ, the Gospel. He was talking about Jesus to a people who had never heard of Him before. And Paul said, said he had a passionate desire for that. In the 16th chapter of the Roman letter, Paul writes and he says, My desire is to go where the Word has not been preached. I want to go to Spain. I want to go as far as I can go and declare the Gospel. But then, bound in the Spirit, Paul journeyed back to Jerusalem, taking a gift, and offering from the churches of Macedonia and Asia to help the saints at Jerusalem in their time of need. And in every city, men would come to him and they would tell him, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be imprisoned, you're going to die if you go to Jerusalem. And Paul said, I know. The Spirit testifies in every city, but I'm bound to go to Jerusalem. He knew the will of God and he pursued it. He arrived at Jerusalem and almost immediately... All of his plans were turned on end. Paul had a lot of desires, a lot of plans. When he went to Jerusalem, though Agabus the prophet said, they're going to bind you and they're going to kill you, he went to Jerusalem and he did what was necessary, being all things to all men. He entered into a vow and he cleansed himself ceremonially and he planned to minister to the church at Jerusalem and roundabout. But he was arrested and he was put in jail. He spent three years in jail there adjacent to Jerusalem in Caesarea. And then he was comported to Rome and, of course, had a shipwreck along the way, had a limited ministry as he was bound and carried to Rome to prison. And then while in Rome, he for a time dwelt in a hired house, but he dwelt under guard and wasn't allowed to go anywhere and do anything. And his contact was with people who were brought to him, which was a very small offering compared to what he experienced before. Now, I don't know what the Apostle Paul went through, but I can tell you there was a time when I preached the gospel three times a week, every week. And I did that for a period of years. And then there was a time when I was unable to speak. I was unable to preach. I was unable to preach for about two years. And that's a difficult transition to make. Well, the Apostle Paul's preaching ministry turned into a ministry of study and of writing and occasional interaction with small groups of people. And that's where Paul is as he writes the Philippians. So Paul says, I want you to understand, brethren, the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is the Holy Spirit writing through Paul. But what this is, is Paul doing what we would call making lemonade out of lemons. Paul is experiencing affliction. He's experiencing suffering. And in that, he sees that the things that have happened to him have fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. What does that mean? He said, God's using this. God knew what he was doing when I didn't know what he was doing. And that's something we all can benefit from, and he wants the Philippian church to benefit from, realizing that God is working even when we don't understand it. And God is at work even when we can't figure it out, and even when our plans are upset. 
So Paul wants that to be understood. In fact, he says, even those who preach the gospel boldly, he said some of them do it because they love the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. Well, that's the reason anyone should preach. That's the only good reason to preach. But Paul says, I recognize there are some who preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Paul says, I've got enemies who are, who are making a loud noise and preaching the gospel just to turn the Romans further against Christians, hoping it'll add affliction to my bonds and I'll get in trouble for it. And Paul says, you know what, when that happens, I'm okay with that. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached... I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn into my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What's Paul saying there? He says, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice because Christ is working. I'm going to rejoice because I know this shall turn to my salvation. Well, how can he know that? Because it always does. There's a couple of times Paul makes statements like this. I know, I know this shall turn to my salvation. I'm going to rejoice in what I don't understand because I know that God is working. Another time Paul employed this language was in the second epistle to Timothy. There at the end of that epistle, he says, there was a time when he came before Caesar, his first answer. He said, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. But the Lord did not forsake me. And what did he learn from that? He says, I know he'll never forsake me. I know the Lord will be with me because he was with me. And one of the lessons that's implied here and important for us to grasp is that experience matters. How has the Lord dealt with you in the past? How have you experienced his love in the past? Well, that's the way the Lord's going to deal in the future. How can I know that? Because God doesn't change. I change. My environment changes, my situations change, my relationships change. Close friends that were my best friends 25 years ago are not my friends any longer. They want nothing to do with me. They've left me. Am I going to be upset by that? Is that going to turn me aside? No. Why? Because God is still the same. And my dependence is on Him. And that's what He's going to get to in a moment. Paul says, I know. I know this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Christ is with me. According to my earnest expectation, my sincere, my confident expectation, and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's what's he saying there? It's pretty clear. He says, Jesus Christ is all that matters, that he be magnified, exalted in my body, whether by life or whether by death, that's not important. Whether by suffering or whether by by pleasure, it doesn't matter. Just that Jesus Christ is glorified, that his name is exalted. He says, as a matter of fact, I don't know what to choose. I'm in a straight betwixt two, having desire to pardon be with Christ, which is far better Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Having this confidence, I know I shall abide and continue with you for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Christ Jesus. He says, I want your rejoicing to be more abundant. So this is a church that is marked by joy. They received the gospel with joy. 
but they received it in much affliction. Paul now is experiencing even greater affliction. And he's writing to them this letter of encouragement, this letter of encouragement that we're in this together, we're experiencing the same things, but this is verily Christ. He closes out the first chapter with this expression, for unto you it is given, here's the gift, unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul says, I know what you're going through. And understand the gift of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the gift of Christ is not only to know him, but also to suffer with him. So he says, you should take confidence. You should take hope. You should rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer for his sake and understand the conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me is real. I'm tired of the suffering. I'm tired of the pain. The desire to depart and be with God is there. But it's more needful. Why? Because to live is Christ. How do we know that? Because we're still alive. You're still alive. It's a great message to remember for any who are struggling with thoughts of of suicide, of ending it all. You're here because Christ has placed you here. To live is Christ. Yes, to die is gain, but to live is Christ. And what comes first? Yourself? Your selfish pleasure? Or Jesus Christ? To live is Christ. Chapter 2 begins, if there be any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies. Paul says, I'm afflicted. To a degree, I'm in torment. I'm restricted here in prison. And I wanted to pardon and be with God. But the consolation in Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, the bowels and mercies. If there be any of these, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul turns on a dime and makes application. Because Christ is real, because His love is real, and because it's the gift of God that we might know Him and that we might suffer with Him. He says, fulfill you my joy. You have the same mind. You have this unity. Be of one accord. Be of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Put the things of others before yourself. Count yourself a servant. Paul makes it clear that was his desire, that was his effort. He said to the Corinthians, I I chose to make myself your servant, not to take anything from you. We covered that earlier this weekend. To these Philippians, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if this ties with the message Brother Ray presented, this is where the tie is found. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant 
and was made in the likeness of men. This message about the condescension of Christ should transform our understanding of who He is and of what He did. Christ was not compelled by any outward source, any outward force to do what He did. He was and is God. And it was not robbery. It was not grasping for Him to be equal with God. But He chose of His own will. And only God's will is free. He can do whatever He wants to do. And Jesus Christ chose to be made in the likeness of men. He chose to stoop down, to condescend, to make himself less. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. How contrary is this to the way that we think? We're always grasping for more, always trying to climb higher, always trying to be more to be better, to be better respected, better esteemed. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, stooped down and chose to make himself of no reputation, to become verily a servant, be made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man... He humbled himself still further. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What's the context here? Paul says, I desire to depart and be with God, which is far better. Jesus Christ was God, was with his Father. And Jesus Christ stooped down and became a man. And becoming a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient, obedient to his own everlasting law, obedient to every precept of the law, obedient to every righteous statute, and ultimately obedient to even secular authorities to the point that he laid down his life. Brother Ray mentioned that Jesus said to Pilate, thou hast no power over me. But at the same time, he said, I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it up again. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This paragraph here of Scripture is one we should memorize and one that we should reflect and meditate on each and every day. This is Jesus Christ. This is God who stooped down, whom having done the work, having finished the work that God gave him to do, was highly exalted above every name. This is the one to whom every knee should bow and to whom every tongue ought to confess. He is Lord to the glory of God. And one day every knee will bow. And one day every tongue will confess. And with that in view, Paul says, Wherefore, because of this, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We've talked about that this weekend. Fear and trembling. Take the commands of God seriously. Take those imperatives of Scripture like they're real. The Apostle Paul in the Corinthian letter says, I fear, lest after I've preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. I labor, I keep my body under subjection. I labor for righteousness' sake. I do the right thing. He says, I choose Christ first. Jesus says, follow me. And if that means leaving everything and everyone else behind, you do it. Leave your family, leave your friends, if that's what it takes to serve me and the truth of my gospel. And he says, when you do that, you'll receive. You'll receive in my home, in my house. You'll receive in my kingdom a hundredfold, all of those things left behind. The Lord's never done us anything but good. And there's nothing forsaken for His sake that is missed in the long run. That's a hard lesson to be learned. Paul says, as you have always obeyed much more, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, understand your salvation and how it applies in your life. Work it out. Experience the salvation that is in Christ Jesus as Jesus works in you and conforms you to His image day by day. Experience the fullness of His sanctification. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. That's God's work in you. We talked about that yesterday afternoon. It's God working in you. He doesn't give you life and leave you alone to your own devices. He works in you daily. Jesus Christ laid down His life. He gave Himself to redeem you from all iniquity and to purify you a peculiar people zealous of good works. So do good works. Seek Him and serve Him, Paul says. It's God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. This is the gift of God, which comes with belief and it comes with suffering for His name's sake. Whatever you do, do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, without rebuke. But He likes to be rebuked. Paul writes to the Hebrews, though, and he says, anyone who endures no chastening is a bastard and not a son. The chastening is grievous for a time, but it works the works of righteousness. It renders you acceptable unto God. God loves you. Those that He loves, He chastens. He scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. But Paul's begging the, the Philippians here, and you and I today, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We've talked a little bit the last couple of days about the darkness of the times in which we live. It's easy to grow discouraged. It's easy to watch the news and politics as they play out and just see the changing of our culture and see that which we know to be good called evil and that which we know to be evil described as good and honored and exalted and in the name of tolerance, the exaltation and the celebration of rebellion against God. That's hard to live with. It's hard to stomach. It's hard to consider. But it's not surprising that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. 
But notice the spin put on it. Among whom, this crooked and perverse nation, you shine as lights in the world. Jesus said, you are lights in the world. A city set upon a hill can't be hid. Who lights a candle and puts it under a bushel? They put it up high in the corner of the house so it will give light to the whole house. You shine as lights in the world. How's that? Holding forth the word of life. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Paul brings it back to this personal relationship. Your light's in the world. Paul says, my legacy and what I leave behind and what matters of my life is what you do with the word of God, what you do with the word of life. You hold forth the word of life and the church of Jesus Christ will continue to manifest his presence and his glory and his truth in a crooked and perverse nation and generation. And Paul says, that's what I rejoice in. That's my hope. Why? Because Paul's imprisoned. He can't go and do any longer. And he knows the time of his departure is at hand. And he says, I rejoice because I know the word is going to continue on in you. Why? Because it's God working in you. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do you and rejoice with me. Let's rejoice together, he says. Chapter 3 begins, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things, these things above to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. He says, I'm interested in your safety, your protection, your health, your joy. You see, we live in a dark world. We live in a world, Peter tells us, where Satan walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And there's a danger for every one of us every day of being devoured, of being toppled, of having our faith overthrown. And God will recover everyone who is lost. But the process, oh, it's grievous. Maybe... Some of you have stumbled from time to time, maybe even for a time forgetting or denying your faith. What a terrible experience that is to live in a world knowing the conviction of sin and knowing the darkness that abounds, but not seeing the light of his presence. David cries out in the Psalms, How long wilt thou forsake me forever? Where have you gone from my presence? And our great high priest experienced that himself. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Beware of those who would turn you aside from the gospel of Jesus Christ and its work in your life. God is working in you and he has worked in you a marvelous, a miraculous change. Beware of those who would steal from you the hope, the confidence, the joy that you have in the Lord. Stay away from them. Beware of them. Why? Because we are not them. We are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Not the physical circumcision that the Jews rejoiced in and, and were so proud of, 
No, we're those whose hearts have been circumcised by the Spirit of God. There's been a cutting away of the affections, a cutting away of the desires of the flesh. There's been an implantation of a holy righteousness, a desire to love God, to serve God, and a knowledge of Jesus Christ that can never be taken away. We are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We talked a little bit this weekend about what it is to have confidence in the flesh, to, to look anywhere but Jesus Christ. The song uh, written by Dotteridge, the dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee. Paul says, we are they who worship God in the Spirit and have no confidence in the flesh, and consequently we are those who rejoice in Christ Jesus. The reason we lack confidence in the flesh has nothing to do with our flesh and our ability or inability. And sometimes we misunderstand that. A lot of us have the attitude in our service to God that we've got to do it on our own as long as we can, and we, when we come to the end of ourselves, God's there to finish the work or pick us up. No, that's not it at all. Beginning to end, it's the work of God, and the confidence is in Him and in His Spirit. And Paul makes that clear. He says, I might have confidence in the flesh. As a matter of fact, if any of you do, I more. And he brags a little bit about himself. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a uh, a child of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Concerning zeal, I, I was the top of the heap, but I was persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Paul says, I could be coming to you as though I were better than you. and I could be declaring all the accolades that I've attained. I could tell you how great I am. But he says, I'm telling you, don't have any confidence of the flesh. I could have confidence in the flesh, but he says, I don't. There's a cutting away. What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Following Jesus Christ does mean a separation of relationship. It means separating from those who will not confess him. Separating from those who do not value his word. Separating from those who reject his gospel. But it also means separating from everything else that we might depend on, every crutch that we might have. Paul exhibits this again and again. He does it as he expresses himself to the Corinthian church. He says, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech or of man's wisdom because I didn't want your confidence, I didn't want your faith to be in the word that you heard, but rather in the power of God, in the spirit of God. Paul says... What things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. There's an intentionality in the life of every professing Christian whereby we have carve away that fleshly confidence, that fleshly desire. And the Holy Spirit does work in us sanctifying us, breaking us of that confidence, and sometimes it's brutal. Sometimes when I trust in myself, the Lord works to take away that which I trust in. 
Paul may have experienced this as well. You remember he writes of a thorn that he was given in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, something physical that was an impediment. It somehow worked against Paul's confidence and his ability in himself. And he cried out to God and he said, deliver me from this thorn three times. And finally the Lord answered. And the Lord's answer was, my grace is sufficient unto thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul, who was strong, was made weak. And maybe that's happened to some of us. Maybe we have confidence in some ability, some great blessing that we have, natural gift. You know, some of us have been blessed at times with a good memory, a good recall of Scripture, a good recall of of history, of things that we've studied and things that we've read, and maybe we become too confident in that, and all of a sudden we can't remember things like we used to. It happens. People are confident in their strength, their physical ability, and all of a sudden they have a stroke or they have some disease that robs them of that strength and that ability. And if we're looking through our spiritual eyes, if we're having the mind of Christ, we see that affliction, that difficulty, and rather than cursing God for it, we acknowledge His work and we thank God because He's increased our dependence upon Him, our reliance on Him. Paul says, the things that were gained to me I counted loss. I count all things but dung that I may win Christ, that I may win Christ. What do you desire most in your life today? Is it success in business? Is it finances? Is it a happy home? Is it a happy marriage? Is it anything other than Christ? If it is, that's idolatry. That I may win Christ. The most important thing, you remember we talked on Friday night about how Paul said, I run as one who wants to win the race. I want to win the race. Here he says that I may win Christ that crown of righteousness, I may win Christ. And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, which is filthy rags, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead." Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. No man's already perfect. Any man who says I've attained perfection is a liar and the truth is not in him. John makes that clear in his epistle. Paul says, I haven't attained, but I press. I press toward the mark for the high calling, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Whatever's perfect, whatever's right in your mind, hold on to it. And whatever's lacking, pursue perfection, pursue holiness, pursue Jesus Christ. Paul says, you mark those who walk. Mark your examples. One of the great blessings in the sanctifying work of God in the church of Jesus Christ is He gives us examples, men and women that we can look to, mothers and fathers in Israel, who we can say, that's what I want to be like. I want to mimic that devotion. I want to mimic that commitment. I want to mimic that humility, that selfishness. There's so much lacking in each of us. But there are examples to look to. He says, mark us as you have us for an example. 
Because there are many who walk in a wrong way, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Jesus Christ told us there's a broad way with a wide gate entering into it, and there's a narrow way with a straight gate. And one of those leads to life, and the other leads to destruction. Paul makes reference to that here. For our conversation is in heaven. Our life, it's not here. What we experience here is so brief, so temporary, such a vapor that it's emptiness, it's vanity. It pales in comparison to eternity in the presence of the Savior, free from sin and free from all of this imperfection. Our conversation, our real life, it's in heaven. Jesus says, what? Set your affection on things above. Jesus says, lay up treasure not on earth where moth and rust corrupts and it decays, but your real treasure is all in heaven. Our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior who stooped down, the Savior who made himself of no reputation, the Savior who was born into a humble place in this world, who had no beauty that we should desire him, who fixed his eyes upon Jerusalem and marched up that hill to the cross, who suffered, who died. He's not still in the tomb. He is risen. And he is alive. And he reigns. And we look for the Savior to come again. Realize that as a believer. This isn't some mystical faith. This isn't some some untangible thing. This isn't something where our whole experience is what we are or do in this life. Christ is coming again. Fix your eyes on Jesus We look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is coming again. And when He comes, He'll change our vile body. Recognize this body is vile. Whatever effort you put into it, Paul says bodily effort, bodily exercise profiteth little for a little while and is of little real value. Why? Because this body, it's vile. But He's going to change this vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. God is working. And God is going to take everything opposed to him, even that sin nature that dwells within you, that whole struggle Paul talks about in Romans 7, all of that is subdued to him. And it's going to be eradicated. He's able to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, therefore, stand fast in the Lord. Therefore, be moderate. Be careful for nothing. Don't be given to worry. Oh, my worry is such an enemy. There's so much to worry about. I don't know how y'all live in this community with what you have next door there in Chicago, all of the politics, all of the crime, all of the, the injustice, all of, all of what's going on. And then I look in my own city and see we're not far behind. I don't know how we live with ourselves in this world. There's so much to worry about, right? No. 
Because God is sovereign over all of that. God's not surprised at the injustice of the wicked. He's not surprised at the wickedness abounding. He's not even surprised at the rebellion of his own people. John catches that in John chapter 1. He came to his own and his own received him not. It wasn't a surprise. Jesus preached to thousands and they turned aside. They went away from him. And Jesus didn't count his ministry a failure. He rejoiced. Why? He rejoiced because every one that he called and every one that he loved came to him. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh I will in no wise cast out. There's confidence, there's hope. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Be people of prayer. Pray. Does prayer matter? Yes, it matters. Can I explain all the details of how prayer works? No, I can't. But I know this. When you pray, God hears your prayers And God answers prayer. His faithfulness is revealed throughout Scripture. He hears and responds to prayer. By prayer and supplication, ask God for what you need and know that He's faithful and He'll give you whatever is needful. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Your intellect is not going to keep you in paths of righteousness. It's not going to keep you in faith with Jesus Christ. Your ability to understand the events of time or the Word of God is not going to secure you. Countless theologians, great-seeming men of God, have studied the Word of God, have understood the Word of God, and have died hopeless and away from the Lord because their confidence was in their ability to work it all out. No. He says, give it up to God. Pray and give thanks. And the peace of God, that peace which comes only from God, the God of all comfort, the peace which doesn't make any sense. That's the way I read, passeth all understanding. It's not just a deeper peace than we can imagine. It's a peace that doesn't make sense. It's the kind of peace Paul felt when he was in prison there in Philippi. It's the kind of peace Peter felt when he was imprisoned in Jerusalem. It's the peace Paul felt as he faced his final answer before Caesar and his imminent death. The peace that Peter felt when his long journey over, he writes in his second epistle, and says, while I remain in this tabernacle, before I suffer what the Lord has showed me I'm to suffer, I want to remind you, stir up your minds by way of remembrance when I tell you that I don't regret anything I've believed. I don't regret following Jesus. This peace passes understanding. It's a peace that doesn't make sense to those outside of Christ. Think about things He's revealed in you, what things are true, what things are honest, what things are just and pure and lovely and of good report. Praise. Think on these things and rejoice. 
Rejoice in the Lord, he says, always. And again, I say rejoice. Brothers and sisters, we have a lot to rejoice in this day. Oh, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of bad stuff in the world. There's a lot of bad stuff in my life. I haven't resisted yet to death striving against sin. Sin's real. Pride is real. Selfishness is real. Fear is real. Fear of rejection. Fear of loss. The uncertainty that exists in this world, it's all real. But what's more real than that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only real truth. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, I am the way to come to the Father. If we can lay hold of that reality and that truth, and we can find our confidence not in the flesh, but in Jesus Christ, and we can have the mind of Christ which said, everything that I have, I'm going to lay aside for God's glory. And keep in mind, that's what Christ came for, God's glory, His own everlasting glory. The object of His work in dying on the cross, it wasn't about me. Did He die for you? Did He die for me? Yes. But our salvation was not about us. It was about God's everlasting glory. And that's what compelled Jesus to stoop down. And if that mind is in us, we'll stoop down. However low our position is, we'll go a little bit lower. James advocates that in his epistle as he writes even of the assembly of the saints. And he says, don't be those who come and seek the front seats. Y'all do pretty good at that here. Y'all like to gravitate toward the back. I think you need somebody to say to you, as James says, wait until they say, come up higher, come forward. Seek the lowest place. Be a servant. Let go of everything that matters because Christ is the only one that matters. And the promise is real. You'll see Him coming You'll be conformed to His image. You'll awake in His likeness. And the psalmist says, you'll be satisfied. Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatsoever state I'm in. Why? Because my contentment is not found in circumstance. It's not found in possession. It's found in one alone, Jesus Christ. And He's able to say, whether by life or death, whether in sickness or in health, whether in poverty or in wealth, so that Christ is magnified in my body, I therein will rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, brethren. He's coming again. Thank you.